This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number three, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about when and to whom is a duty of care owed. The first element that must be established by a plaintiff in proving a negligence case is that the defendant owed the plaintiff a duty of care. If the defendant did not owe the plaintiff a duty of care, then even if the defendant was careless and caused injury to the plaintiff, there would be no recovery in negligence. In this lecture, the key question is when and to whom is a duty of care owed? In other words, is there a duty? The question of what is required by a duty of care, in other words, just how careful do you have to be, is a question for the next lecture, in which we will talk about the breach of duty. Whether or not there is a duty of care is generally considered a question of law, meaning it is a matter for the judge to decide. Thus, the doctrine of duty of care can be used to prevent a jury from hearing a case that might otherwise result in a substantial award of damages. The essential concept in defining the duty of care in negligence is foreseeability. A defendant is said to owe a duty of care to all foreseeable plaintiffs for all foreseeable harm. One way to think about the elements of a negligence case is that they are the law's way of providing an analytical structure and will pare down the universe of possible negligence matters into a subset of cases where awarding compensation is in tune with our basic intuitions of fairness. But when you try to construct simply stated rules that will both correspond with a sense of justice and work in any context, you run into the inevitable need for some amount of space. In tort law, the elements of duty of care and proximate causation do the most to provide that space, with duty of care being primarily the domain of judge and proximate causation being generally the province of the jury. The duty of care can be defined as an obligation for people to exercise reasonable care to avoid foreseeable harm to others. It is a frustratingly unclear definition. 
So if you feel like you are having a hard time understanding the concept of duty, do not worry. It probably just means that you're reading closely and thinking deeply. The duty of care standard is vague out of necessity. One question regarding the duty of care is whether a duty of care will be present in the circumstance in which a person is pressured to accede to the demands of a criminal in order to prevent harm to an innocent person. Few courts have considered this question, but a majority have concluded that there is no duty. Now moving to affirmative duties. It is well accepted that the general duty of care requires would-be defendants to refrain from actions that unreasonably subject foreseeable plaintiffs to a risk of harm. There is, however, no general duty to affirmatively engage in actions to prevent harm to plaintiffs. Stated more plainly, you only have to try to not hurt people. You do not have to try to help them. The distinction is sometimes said to be between non-feasance on the one hand and malfeasance or misfeasance on the other. In this terminology, non-feasance is doing nothing, while malfeasance or misfeasance is doing something harmful. Ordinarily, no duty is implicated in cases of non-feasance, where the would-be defendant just stands by and watches harmful events unfold. This is true even, for instance, if there is an easy opportunity to step in and prevent massive loss of life or suffering. On the other hand, the activity a person undertakes must be undertaken in a reasonably careful manner. Thus, malfeasance implicates the duty of care. There are some important exceptions, These include circumstances where there is a pre-existing special relationship between the plaintiff and defendant, and where the defendant's own conduct put the plaintiff in peril. The overarching rule is that the law does not require persons to be good Samaritans and step up to help people in distress. A generally recognized exception to the no affirmative duty rule is a situation in which the defendant's own conduct created the plaintiff's peril. If the defendant has left a banana peel on the road and the plaintiff slips on it and falls, the defendant has a duty of care to help the plaintiff out of the roadway before a truck comes along and strikes the plaintiff. If the plaintiff is hurt badly enough, the defendant also has an affirmative duty to call emergency services. Note that this exception applies when it is the defendant's negligence that has produced the perilous situation. If the defendant's innocent conduct somehow creates the peril, traditional doctrine holds that no affirmative duty is incurred. Many people, when they first hear about the common law's lack of a duty to rescue, ask, what about good Samaritan laws? All states have so-called Good Samaritan laws on the books, but they don't work the way most people think. Instead of requiring people to come to one another's rescue, these laws most commonly function to provide a liability shield for the clumsy rescuer who decides to come to a person's aid 
but then ends up doing more harm than good. The idea of these statutes is to reduce the fears of someone who, at the scene of an accident, thinks, I know CPR, but if I try to help out, I might end up getting sued. An example is Swenson versus Wasika Mutual Insurance Company. In that case, a group of friends were snowmobiling when one of them, a 13-year-old Kelly Swenson, suffered what appeared to be a dislocated knee. The friends tried to flag down a passing motorist for help. A woman named Nillian Teagues was nice enough to stop. After trying unsuccessfully to call 911 on her cell phone, Teagues offered to take Swenson to the hospital. When Teagues tried to make a U-turn on the highway to go to the direction Swenson needed, a speeding tractor trailer struck Teagues' vehicle and killed Swenson. Swenson's family sued Teagues alleging she was negligent in making the turn. Teagues' insurance company was able to use the state's Good Samaritan law as a liability shield. Good Samaritan laws vary state by state in coverage. Typically, the laws provide immunity from ordinary negligence, but not from gross negligence or recklessness. Who is protected by the laws varies as well. Some laws extend immunity to any well-meaning stranger. Some only apply to persons with training or persons who are licensed professionals, such as nurses, EMTs, and physicians. Although in the ordinary case, Good Samaritan laws do not require people to render aid, there are some states that have laws that impose some kind of a duty to stop and render aid. These states make it an offense to fail to render reasonable assistance at the scene of an emergency to someone who is exposed to or has suffered grave physical harm if it is possible to safely do so. Despite the general no affirmative duty rule, there is an affirmative duty to render aid or take other affirmative actions in situations involving certain pre-existing relationships. Examples of duties owed on account of special relationships are common carriers to passengers, innkeepers to guests, landlords to tenants, stores to customers, possessors of land open to the public to members of the public lawfully present, schools to students, employers to employees, jailers to prisoners, and daycare providers to the children or adults being cared for. So, for instance, if a hotel fire breaks out for reasons having nothing to do with negligence on the part of the hotel, the owners are nonetheless under a duty to help patrons to safety. Similarly, if a customer in a store has a heart attack and falls to the floor, the storekeepers have an obligation to dial 911. Another exception to the no affirmative duty rule is when a defendant assumes the duty. A motorist is driving along the highway and comes upon the scene of a car crash. In this instance, he is under no duty to stop. This is true even if no other help has yet arrived. But if the motorist does stop, 
to render aid. Then he has assumed a duty. This means that the driver is liable for any additional harm caused by his failure to take whatever affirmative steps are reasonable under the circumstances. Certainly, such a duty would include calling 911, assuming there is cell phone service. Moreover, once the motorist has stopped, then he cannot unassume the duty by getting back in his car and driving away. Of course, once emergency responders have arrived, he could leave, since reasonable care would not require him to stay. One rationale the courts have articulated for the assumption of duty rule is that once a bystander voluntarily intercedes to render aid, this makes it less likely that other people will do so. So if a would-be rescuer comes to the aid of someone, but then acts carelessly or fails to follow through, the plaintiff will be left in a worse position than if the defendant had never stopped in the first place. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.